0: Everyone, this is my Bible. Bible. I believe it's God's Word. I believe believe every word is true. true. And it's it's all that I need. Aren't we grateful we have it? Okay, Luke chapter 13, tonight. It starts out, and there were some present at that time who told Jesus that There were some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, I don't know about you, but I did not understand that too good. I mean, I I didn't know that some thought it was good to tell Jesus about these Galileans. And what does that mean? Whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. I can tell I've spiritually grown because how many times I've done Luke and I just kind of read over that. Just kind of accepted it like a barely, you know, that's just a little too complicated for me. But this time I went and searched it out and I'm so glad I did. And it all has to do with the ruthlessness of Pilate. Pilate was, I mean, picture this that Pilate was watching a group of people on their way to church, on their way to the synagogue, to what? Probably carrying their pigeon or a little lamb or whatever, carrying, carrying their sacrifice to the temple. And he just... See, to me, I can't even comprehend this. I know we've had people like this throughout history. And we're living with one even right now. I mean, I can't even fathom someone like an Adolf Hitler, a Bin Laden, a Putin, who can honestly just plain kill people. But apparently it started already back then because Pilate, Herod, they just fell. They look at a group of Jews and on their way to sacrifice, they just kill them. And I do believe that that is what is being mentioned here in the first verse. So they wanted to tell Jesus about it. And Jesus had kind of a different question response Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I thought to myself, worse sinners? They're on their way to church. To sacrifice. How could they possibly be worse sinners? But see, back then, and you remember this story remember when Jesus healed the man that was born blind? And the disciples said to Jesus, What did those parents do? See, back then, if anybody had a tragedy, uh, a big catastrophe in their family or something, you know, like these instances we're reading in these first few verses, the tendency right away is to question, oh, I wonder what the hidden sin was. It's like God's punishment on their life. And so that was the mentality. Well, Jesus wanted to nip that right off the bat because he knew what they were thinking like for this senseless act what a tragedy oh, i wonder what they did to have to have to go through this punishment and so that's why he said are they worse sinners like what was their hidden sin and look what his his response to his own question was i tell you no exclamation point i think what He was saying there, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We don't work that way. And no, they are not worse sinners because of this. And then he kind of brings up the next illustration himself. Because he says, but unless you repent, you too will perish. You will all perish. Because now, listen, it says, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Like there's another tragedy. Oh, I wonder what they did. No, we don't work that way. I tell you the truth, no, they weren't more guilty. I think what he's trying to get us across to, To us tonight back then is that you know what you're all gonna die everybody's gonna die but Jesus is not we've covered this in the last few weeks that he is not that concerned about our earthly body now I know we hold on to our earthly life in a death grip and I think it's just natural that because we want to live But Jesus is trying to use this as a teaching, like all of this segment in this chapter of Luke 13. I think Luke grabbed out different illustrations that he had heard and put it in this chapter because there is a theme here, and that is look inside of yourself. Look inside of yourself and make sure that you're real, that there might be an area of your heart that needs to be worked on. And so even in this instance, people with that thought, oh, people are worse sinners when catastrophes hit because they obviously had done something wrong. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case. In fact, yes, we're all going to die. However, I really don't care that much about your earthly body. I care more because look at his response. In both instances, he said the very same thing. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. You've heard the phrase that if you, you might have known all the facts of Christianity. You might be a very religious person. And yet you have never experienced Jesus for yourself. I say this every week. You if you've done it, you understand. When you take that all alone walk. It's so easy to think, well, I can go to Calvary. I can make my profession of faith. I'm gonna do it with a great big group. But Jesus wants each and every one of us to take that individual walk ourselves. And He is trying to say, this is what I care about the most. Those who are real, who know me in a real way. This is what happens. They are born twice. And they only die once. They're born first in the physical way. They're born the second time through the Spirit of God. Through their walk to Calvary. And they only have to physically die because there will be no eternal death for them. But for the person who just plays the religious game and never wants to take this gospel story and make it theirs. And we're going to see it so clear in this chapter. He's saying, you know what? You are going to be born once. It's obvious but you're going to die twice. And so that's why he's saying, and while you still have the time, I want you to know that repentance is a must. John the Baptist started his first sermon with the word repent. Jesus started his first earthly sermon with the word repent. It's that important repentance, I looked it up even though I thought I knew what the definition of repentance was sometimes if you go to the dictionary you kind of get a little different perspective and it did for me with repentance I found that true repentance is a whole different way of thinking when you repent you are committing to a whole different way of thinking you are committing to a whole new life See, I don't think repentance is explained good enough. Because I think that that's a problem Paul had to the Galatians when he said, if you think you can just keep on sinning because grace abounds, all you have to do is at the end of the day say, I'm sorry for my sins. No, repentance is when you take a look at your day, when you take a look and see and you can pinpoint, oh boy, did I say this? Did I look like this? Did I act like this? Did I was I critical? Did I gossip? Believe me, the Holy Spirit will be very specific and show you. And he expects repentance, but he doesn't expect it flippantly. Like that's okay, because tomorrow I can just do the same and ask the same forgiveness because oh if I confess my sin he's faithful and just oh you talk about twisting things around but true repentance means "Ah, I hate it so much that it hurts you Lord that I am going to change my whole way of thinking I'm going to change my whole way of living because I don't want to keep doing this and Jesus says that if you don't repent Not only, I mean, this is what he's talking about is the repentance of salvation, taking that walk to Calvary. He said, you're gonna perish. And he's talking about that eternal death. But I believe he's also talking about the everyday sin that we commit. He wants us to identify it. And he wants us to change our thinking and our way of living. He really does want to make a dent in our lives with this word, repentance. But he also wants us to know that unless, and this is big, unless you repent, you will not experience his forgiveness. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. But let me tell you though, he showed me something really wonderful this week. Because sometimes when when someone has hurt you and you know that that you have to forgive, but you just can't. Because it's like if I if I forgive, they've never asked, they've never said they were sorry, they've never repented. Then I just don't feel that I have to forgive because Jesus makes it very clear that there's no forgiveness unless we repent so I think I don't have to but an unforgiving spirit it's not the same it's not the same as our forgiveness from Jesus as our forgiveness with an individual Because an unforgiving spirit weighs a ton. And Jesus wants to free us up. And how can we do something like forgive when they haven't even said they're sorry? Jesus said, just remember what I did for you. And if you keep in mind what I have done and what I have forgiven you from, And what I want to do is set you free because I know that this unforgiving spirit is just weighing you down. And it is infiltrating in all kinds of areas of your life. So try just forgiving anyway. And you will find that you are set free. I know for me, it works. I'm not kidding you. It works. If you go to the Lord and you say, I am forgiving this person. I'll tell you, there is a freedom that happens, even though they've never said they were sorry. Because you know what? I can now go on living. That old monkey is off my back and the Lord because in your mind if you think well you know now they're going to think they get away with it but does any sin ever does, does any sin ever are we ever going to get away with any sin never and what it does for me is it frees me up but I also know but now you are going to have to deal with the Lord on this because he sees it all But I can let it go and I can go on living in this kind of freedom without carrying the heavy shackle. So I just think Jesus is in this word repentance and the way he says it twice. He says, I first want to make sure that you understand how important it is and it is a must if you want me to forgive you. But I want you to see the miracle of what my spirit can do. When you realize what I've done for you, it will enable you to get freed up by letting it go, even if they're not repentant, because you know God will handle it in his way, in his time. In the meantime, you go on. It's pretty freeing. It's pretty wonderful. Then he told this parable a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Why should it take Why should it take room in the vineyard? Why should it eat up the nutrients of good soil? Cut it down. I think we can understand that concept, but you know that this is a parable, so that means, yes, it's an earthly story, but what exactly is the heavenly meaning? What is Jesus trying to get across here? So we have a fig tree And it says it's notorious for producing figs. That's what a fig tree does. I kind of look at this as the fig tree represents the person who's got every kind of sign over them that they're a Christian. I'm a Christian. I put the emblems on my car. Every physical way I can say i'm a Christian, I do it' got signs everywhere, and so, like the fig tree, the owner of the vineyard has every right to check it out to see if that tree is producing any fruit. Remember John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, "Produce fruit with repentance." If you want to take a good look at what repentance really looks like, you see the transformation that a life starts taking. And all of a sudden, it's not the fruit of self that's coming out. It's the beautiful characteristics of Jesus, the fruit of his spirit coming out. So I think Jesus does a check every now and then. Last week, remember, right in the middle... It's like Jesus plunked in the middle of a paragraph. He says, so, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And we talked about that. Does Jesus really mean that that's what he expects of us? To sell everything that we have and give it to the poor? And I said, no, I don't think so. Because Jesus knows by using that as an example, because it's in the context of what he was teaching. But I couldn't help but see that he will test us because he knows us so well, and he knows where our weaknesses lie. He knows where where we seem to be drawn as far as the flesh is concerned. So he'll test us. Or I think sometimes he just checks just to see if we really do mean what we say. If our lives represent him, if our lives are committed to service, do all of a sudden we realize, no, I'm not my own anymore. I'm his. I think he does a check every now and then to make sure. And if he doesn't see any fruit... See, he doesn't play games. He he wants us to see. Again, I repeat and I will do it many times tonight. He wants us to check within. It's time we check our heart condition. He's been after that for the last few weeks. But tonight, he really is. He's talking to a lot of church people. That's what he's doing. He's talking to a lot of church people who think They are fine. And they are so biblically illiterate. I wanted to use the word stupid so bad, but I just didn't. But anyway, they just, they got all the signs all over them. But they don't open their Bibles. They don't study. They might do their quick devotion, but they don't study, or they wouldn't be acting like this. They would have fruit. Jesus says if you don't produce fruit, that means, that means you're, you're not real. Remember when John the Baptist kind of hit on this issue too, where he said the axe is right at the base of the tree. I mean, this is, this is just how strict and firm Jesus is on this subject. I don't care how many words you say or how many signs you wear or how many emblems are on your car. If I don't see the fruit of Jesus, if I don't see the transforming power of the Spirit working out of you, no, it doesn't happen in 20 minutes, but we should be seeing progress. Because why? We're studying, we're studying, we're getting to know Him better. We can't wait to know more. All of a sudden, we are excited about, I wonder what He's going to tell me next. I wonder what He's going to teach me next. But he's always checking. Huh, let's, let's do an assignment. Let's take a look. With this example, let's take a look at your heart. He's always making sure we're checking. Now, in the next verse, the man replied, Sir, because that was quite, when, when, the, when the owner said, cut the thing now. I mean, look, Jesus has been patient. He's, he's been doing this for three years, according to the order of the vineyard. I mean, he, he was being patient. He said, I've done this for three years. I've come here and checked. And you know what? Enough's enough. Cut it down. And here comes the man who runs the vineyard. Sir, sir, leave it alone for one more year. And I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. <laughs> I'll try harder. I'll do everything to put the nutrients in. I'll do everything that, and then they get there again, I can't help but see what what the person is saying. In fact, this is the thing that popped into my mind. I'm sorry to talk about Jason again, but but I gotta tell you, when he when he was just so naughty, when he was just yelling at me about I'm not believing, just cause you tell me. And yep, I went to his bed every day and Yeah, I prayed for him, but I never did tell you that. I pleaded at the end of my prayer. I pleaded. Lord, please give him another chance. I'll do a better job. I'll nurture him better. I'll talk to him better. Please give him another chance. Because see, reality to me was when that kid left the house every day. I mean, none of us knows what a day's going to bring. An accident can happen. And I was just so, I was so concerned about the fact that he was going to leave one day and not come back. That something was going to happen to him. And then I got to tell you, I don't know. I don't know. There was no commitment. He had never said yes to Jesus. No, he blamed me. And I'm telling you every day I prayed. I begged the Lord for another chance. So I understand this man who's running who's managing the vineyard. I'll try harder. I'll do I'll do whatever I can. And then and then he said, and then a year from now. A year from now if if if, if he produces fruit, then great. It was worth another chance. But if he's not, if there's no fruit, then we cut it down. The reality is chilling. We know, and you filled out on your paper, and I bet it took about a half a second. Do we serve the God of another chance? We sure do. But none of us knows when the chances are over. And we are going to see tonight that there is a time when he says, no more chances. And it's too late. And this message, too, has not been just once. It's been repeated in the last chapters. Jesus is serious. He's, he is on his way to the cross So it's just something to think about there. Huh? Yes, he is the God of many chances. But are you willing to play Russian roulette with the chances? Because wonder if something happens before? Before that chance, that one more chance. We said that last week when we said, you know, to the person who says, oh, even though, yep, he's going to come as a thief in the night and none of us knows the day or the hour. Oh, but he's not going to come for a long time. You, you're willing to play Russian roulette with your salvation. That's all, that's all I can say because that's how Jesus ends his little talk right there. It's just another one of those times where he says, now you think about that. And you take a look inside. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit, little ass spirit, for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. I think that's important that we see the description. She's just not suffering from a little bit of osteoporosis. She is, for 18 years, she is so bent over that I don't think that she has been able to even look up and see the sky, to see the sun, to see the stars, to maybe even see people's faces all she has been doing for 18 years is looking at the ground 18 years how horrible what a terrible way to live and yet but did you notice where was this where was this lady when she had this profound meeting with jesus where was she it says right there, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. Verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward. So where was she? She was in church. Man, did I love that! Because so often when you have an infirmity, as severe as this, you can, you can just fall into that funk, you can feel sorry for yourself, you can even blame God. You're not fair. Why does my friend have the ability to have a strong body and can do all this and here I am crippled practically to the ground? And it doesn't seem like you're doing anything about it. You know what? You see the opposite. She is not at home feeling tired of herself. She is not wallowing in self-pity. She had somehow with her broken body made her way to church. And she had no idea she was going to have this beautiful confrontation with Jesus. That was her call. That was her choice. That's how she got through it every day. Because there's something about when you are willing to, to meet up with God, whether it's at church or, but I'll tell you, it's so worth the time because you're, you're like renewed. You're revitalized. You're empowered to be able to go back and deal with another day, another week. Because where does self-pity get you? Where does wallowing get you? I just as soon go to a place where I'm going to be reminded of the power of God. Even though I might not have the kind of life I expected, I trust. But look at Jesus said, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. You are set free from your infirmity. Now, that, those few words, that little line and a half, I'll tell you, this is permissible. Instead of a woman, stick your name in there. Now, granted, we know Jesus healed her of her physical infirmity. infirmity but I'm telling you what do we know about what Jesus has done what is our greatest infirmity ever and that is our sin and the fact that it overpowers us and that it will will cause us unless we do something about it it will cause us to eternal death eternity in hell and yet Jesus calls us by name and says, if you're willing to believe in me, I will make sure that your infirmity is gone. Never to suffer from it again. Because the blood took care of every one of your sins. Picture this. Then he put his hands. He put his hands. You talk about compassion. Jesus looked at this poor lady and I think it just, it just made him want to do something because of not only her beautiful heart but the compassion of how she had to live. And so when he said, woman, you are set free from your infirmities, he put his hands on her. That touch, that touch from Jesus Even though we don't actually feel the touch of Jesus, in a sense, sometimes I just close my eyes and I can feel it. And how his touch can heal my infirmities. And maybe it doesn't take away every physical infirmity, but I'm reminded he's not that concerned about my physical, he wants to heal my within. He wants to heal my pieces of my heart that I haven't turned over to him yet that are still a little bit fake. There's no such thing as a little bit fake. Sounded good though, didn't it? He's always working on those pieces of our heart because he wants us real every inch of our heart and soul. Look, look what she did. This is why I know she had such a beautiful heart. Because immediately she strained up. Wouldn't you love to watch this? This poor woman who's been humped to the ground all of a sudden strains up. What's the first thing she does? She praises God. First thing she does. Look at verse 14. The very first word. You've got those religious, legalistic, but fake rulers of the synagogue. They're indignant. Did you ever try saying the word indignant with a smile on your face? You can't. Just saying the word indignant must use those muscles that cause you to frown, that causes you to be critical, And crabby, indignant. He was indignant. And look what he says. He turns to the people and he said, there are six days for work. So come on those six days to be healed. Not on the Sabbath. Like, what difference does it make? Did you take a look at her? Well, Jesus comes back. He knows how to say it. See, he tried a couple weeks ago with woe to you, woe to you, to try to get them to see themselves. He tried to use brutal confrontation. Didn't work. Today, he's going to try humiliation. Hopefully, this will do it. He says, you hypocrites. He called them that right off the bat. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? He's saying, you know what? It takes work to untie that knot. It takes work to lead that donkey over to the water trough. He just kind of put them right in their place. If you can do that with no problem then should you not then should not this woman and now watch Jesus give all kinds of reasons for I mean he had he had a case he said how can you look at this woman for one thing there's case number 1 She's a woman. Don't you feel a sense of responsibility to help her? Again, all I could think of, oh, that priest and that Levite. I can't believe it. That's what fake looks like. It's just so pitiful. She's a woman bent over. And then he tries this one. She, She's a daughter of Abraham. I mean, it shouldn't have made a difference whether she was a Gentile off the streets. Wouldn't have to Jesus. But he's at least trying to say, hey, she's one of you. This doesn't grab you. She's a woman. She's one of you. Satan has had a grip on her for 18 years. shouldn't you care that she be set free on the Sabbath day from what binds her like where's your hard man when he said this all, all his opponents were humiliated they were humiliated but all the people We're delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. What a contrast. Just a few verses to say, this is what a religious person looks like when he's fake inside. There, there you see it. Pretty bad, huh? But to the simple person who maybe is not very popular in the world's eyes. Maybe she's had to stay home for 18 years because she couldn't go anywhere. She, she wasn't very productive in this condition. But look at her heart. Look at her heart. No complaint. No whining. Gets to church. Immediately praises God. See? Last week, Jesus said where your treasure is. And a lot of times your treasure is your own self. That's where your heart is. And the real you will be noticeable. Okay, then we get into another part. It says then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? That's why it's kind of like a mystery. What is the kingdom of God like? In fact, he even says, What can I compare it to? I want to make it clear. I want to make the kingdom of God clear. So he said, It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. The kingdom of God is like a little speck. You've all seen a mustard seed. It doesn't even look like a seed. It looks like a little noceum. It's just a little black speck. So he says, all it takes is a mustard seed to then grow it. Look at what he says. He says, it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air perched in its branches. So the kingdom of God is, well, John the Baptist, he said the kingdom of God is near. Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. In Luke 17, we're going to get to it later in the year, Jesus himself says the kingdom of God is within you. So what is the kingdom of God in a nutshell? It's your and my relationship with Jesus. And he's saying all it takes is just a little speck to start that. Now the kingdom of God while we're here is our relationship with him working both ways. Jesus doing his part, me doing mine. That's the kingdom of God. It's kind of like what Jesus said, you abide in me and I abide in you. It's that great relationship. But someday I really believe that the kingdom of God turns into the new heaven and the new earth. It turns into a place. Because our relationship with God is an just inward, it's going to be outward, because there he is. Isn't that magnificent? But right now, until we are there, and until we are in his presence, in part of the new heaven and the new earth, that kingdom of God is within us. And I love the way the analogy can be. All all you need to start it is a speck. But this week, I think it took me quite a few hours because there was something that just, I felt like the Lord wanted me to take it deeper because it could be that simple. Because when he says, what shall I compare the the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast. It's like leaven that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. So we've got two examples. Birds that perch in the branches and leaven that's put in a big pile of flour. In both instances, like birds, for example, Birds are not used in the Bible very often. Um, positively, they're used kind of in negative terms. It's kind of like it's kind of like um, remember when Jezebel was shmucked on the ground? And and God says, and the birds are gonna come and eat her. Or Sometimes when you and I were driving and there's a big piece of roadkill, usually the closer we get to that roadkill, birds fly away. That's gross, isn't it? It's gross. They're eating that dead carcass. And then I'm reminded in Revelation 19, where after the Battle of Armageddon, and Jesus on the white horse opens up his mouth. And the word, which is the sword. All he has to do is open his mouth and the word just annihilates everybody. Jesus said to John, write this down, tell the birds to come on. There's a feast. There's going to be a feast for them. So you can't help but think that when Jesus said and oh by the way, when he said that this mustard seed is gonna grow into a tree, I would dare say there was a lot of people listening to that that said, "Oops, I think he made a little mistake here. Because mustard seeds don't grow into trees. Mustard seeds grow into bushes. And yet we know Jesus doesn't make a mistake. And so he meant to say tree. See, this is kind of what got me thinking. Why would he say tree when mustard seeds only grow into bushes? And why would he say where birds can perch and they they can be on those branches? And what about that leaven? leaven is used in scripture too. It's nothing positive, usually a negative. You can take this for what it's worth. I'm just going to throw out to you what I think I discovered here. Through God's spirit, I think the birds and the leaven, because remember he's talking about the kingdom of God in us. It doesn't get any better but I look at birds and leaven as symbols of me, self. Kind of like another warning. He's saying, in that beautiful kingdom of God that lives within you, self still wants to raise its ugly head and it can do damage with your relationship. Because why would he say this example twice using these particular symbols I think it's a warning to us because let me tell you I can start a day holding on gripping Jesus hand like you can not imagine oh I am in a right relationship with him this is going to be a good day because he and I are tight and it can be five minutes later someone crosses me That quick, I'm embarrassed to say how quick my attitude, my countenance, everything can change. Self changes it all. And it just disturbed that wonderful kingdom of God relationship. I think this is one big warning that Jesus is saying, beware, you have this precious gift of the kingdom of God, this relationship growing inside of you. Because it starts as a mustard seed, and it can grow and grow and grow. But beware, self just wants to take over sometime. And that stands in the way of growing this relationship. For what it's worth. But in the context, and remember again, in the context of this chapter, Jesus is just making sure. Look within yourself. Then Jesus went through the towns and the villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Haven't you discovered that when Jesus is in the middle of a teaching or if he's on his way somewhere, it's like people jump out of nowhere. Like last week, I mean, what an intense teaching Jesus was in, right in the middle of it. This guy jumps up and says, yeah, would you do something about my brother? He's not playing nice. He's trying to chip me out of my share of the inheritance had nothing to do with Jesus' teaching. But that's what self looks like. See, that's what self does. You don't even hear. That's why Jesus is warning. Because when self is reigning, you don't hear the beautiful words of the Spirit in that beautiful relationship with you and the kingdom of God. So this guy, kind of, pops up out of nowhere with quite a question. So if you think about that, it probably is a Jew who, for all his life, has been taught, "You're child of Abraham. You are fine. You're in." Even though John the Baptist, remember when the first part of Luke where John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, when he said, you know, he just, he just makes this comment so clear. He said, just, just because before you even say it out loud, I'm going to nip it before you do. You think you're a child of Aaron. He said, you know, when it comes to Jesus and this this guy probably has been trained that I 'm a child of Abraham, and so I'm in, and so we're all going. every Jew is going. But then maybe along the way, he's heard Jesus in his teaching, maybe he heard Jesus say and wide. Wide is the way that many are on, but narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. Maybe he heard that teaching, and maybe he thought, well, now what is it? And so, i got to say, I appreciate this guy. He went right to the source. I think he's confused. And I think Jesus appreciated it too. Except he's going to answer this man in a far different way than the man expects. He comes back and he says, Jesus says, make every effort. Um, the King James Version says drive, which means make a great effort. So make every effort, make a great effort seek, work at this, make sure, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. So he's making it very clear. He's pretty much saying, it's not that I don't care about everybody else, but you ask the question and I'm going to tell you what about you? Are you saved? Are you saved? There's more to this. Now Are there going to be many there, or are there going to be just few there? Only few saved. Jesus is saying, "We get so worked up about, I want the answer." And Jesus is saying, "No, what you need to do is look within. And ask yourself, are you saved? That's the important question Jesus wants each individual to answer. And then he says, I tell you, there, there's going to be many who try to answer and they're not going to be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. And you will say, sir, open the door for us. What did this remind you of? For me, my mind went all right away to Noah. For a hundred years, when he, I mean, that's how long it took to build that ark. A hundred years. He and his sons are trying to get people to just believe. To trust that God wants obedience and faith. I know it never rang before. I know this sounds ridiculous. But are you going to step out with a mustard seed of faith and walk in through the door while we've got time? And you've, you've seen it probably in Branson or Lancaster or you've even pictured it when God shut the door. And all of a sudden you hear the banging on the outside. People that are screaming, let me in. Sir, open the door. But he will answer. I don't know you or where you come from. I don't know you or where you come from. Remember last week we said that someday when we stand in front of Jesus on that day, you're either gonna hear one of two things. You're either gonna hear hear him call you by name and invite you and say, welcome. Come on in. Look what I have prepared for you. Well done. Begin your eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth. That sounds pretty wonderful, doesn't it? Or you're going to hear him say this. I don't know you. I don't even know where you came from. And then the person, see, I think this chapter is, like I said before, it is to church people. I'm sorry to have to say this, but I'm bold enough and not to say it to any church in in this town. I know that God has called me to church people. A missionary to the church people. Because I'm telling you, they are deluded with thinking that they're fine. Because look what comes back. Look what, look what comes back. Then Then you will say, or they will say, after when Jesus says, I don't know you. I don't know where you've come from. And they'll come back and say, what are you talking about? We ate with you? We drank with you? And you taught in our streets? This week I sat there and I thought, what does that mean? You've got these, because this whole chapter, Jesus is talking to religious people, to church people. And he's now confronted those with the truth that it's going to be too late, the door is going to close, and you're going to want to come in because all of a sudden you're going to remember. And you're going to try to get in, but it's too late. And so when they came back with, well, we ate with you, we drank with you, what does that mean? What does that mean to a church person who's been in the church for years? I think that they were saying, I've sat at the Lord's table more times than I can count. Oh, I took that little piece of bread, symbolic of the body of Christ. Oh, yes, I drank that grape juice, symbolic of the blood of Christ. I did that so many times. Oh, and what about that you taught in the streets? got a church on every corner, take your pick. But you didn't hear a word of it. Oh, you sat in there, you heard more sermons, but you didn't really care to apply it to yourself. So you were, you were deluded thinking that, well, at least people see me here. I might be thinking about my Christmas list, but at least I'm here. I think that that's what that verse means. Jesus is gonna confront them with the truth. But the thing is, he's gonna come back and say to them the same words he said before. I don't know you, I don't care how many times you sat at my table, I don't care how many times you heard sermons, I don't know you. Because I can look inside, fake this whole chapter, what you look within. But this time, he says more. He says, I don't know you, I don't know where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. He called them evildoers. And he continues with verse 28, because in case you forgot, When I say, away from me, what that really means. I've told you so many times, but you didn't care. You really didn't think I would do that. But you're wrong. Away from me, you evil doers. There will be weeping there. There will be gnashing of teeth there. And by the way, on your way down you're going to get a glimpse of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. You're going to get a glimpse of them. And another glimpse you might get is maybe a loved one that chose to instead be fake, be real. And they were welcomed in. And you might get a glimpse of them oh wouldn't it just be wonderful to stay there well sorry you yourselves will be thrown out you're gonna to me that would be absolute torture you're gonna get a glimpse of all that and you're gonna you're gonna be thrown right out Verse 29, people, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. (laughs) He says, you know, there's going to be so many surprises when we get there because people are going to be coming in from the east, the west, the north and south, every culture, every language, every color, Tom and I were talking this week about this wonderful nun sister that we met when I was going to beauty school. We always did the nuns in beauty school. We practiced on them because they just put their habit back on anyway. <laughs> but we, we made friends with this wonderful nun. In fact, she came to our, our little apartment And I can't even believe what I served her because I couldn't cook a lick. But that didn't matter. And we would sit there and she would tell us her testimony. She just beamed the love of Jesus. She said how she came to know Christ as her personal Savior. How he lives in her heart. I think there's going to be so many people that are going to be surprised to see sister... Sister Marie Suzanne in heaven because she's Catholic. But Jesus said, they're going to be coming from every direction if they know me and they've walked to the cross humbly in full repentance. I think we're going to see people, we're going to see we're going to think we're going to see a lot of Marys. But we're going to see just as many Marthas. And we're going to be surprised at some people that, that always worked in the kitchen. I recognize their face, but never knew their name. But they always were in the kitchen. I always saw that man who was cleaning the church. Didn't Didn't know his name, but... What about those teachers? How easy it is to forget their names, but day in and day out, they are communicating the love of Jesus to children. Someday we're going to be able to see, and that's why Jesus said, and the first are going to be last, and the last will be first. I think it's just, we're going to be in for a great surprise. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. It kind of made me feel good and remind me that not every Pharisee, not every Pharisee was fake. I mean, you think about, if you think about Nicodemus. You think about men like Joseph of Arimathea. And there was a group of them that got wind. That ruthless Herod is trying to kill Jesus. And so they take it upon themselves to try to protect him. Jesus replied in quite a different manner. At first, I kind of thought that he was just kind of pulling an animal out of the hat but there was so more, much more to that when he said you go tell that fox I had no idea that back in the culture of that day you know they didn't have lions and tigers and all that so the Jews looked at a fox as the slyest of animals it was those foxes it was a fox it was those fox that could get in and kill those sheep also they also knew that the fox was the most destructive animal at the time and they also number three used the fox as a symbol of a worthless insignificant godless individual so when jesus when jesus called him a fox they identified immediately you go tell that fox that sly destructive worthless godless individual you go tell him i will drive out demons I'll keep healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. That's what makes me think that Jesus had Luke take this circumstance and put it in this chapter. Because again, it is about looking inside of yourself. Because it looks like Jesus is three days away from the cross and what does Jesus say here in any case I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day he's saying I am not a quitter I know it's getting really tough out there I know the way this is going to end and the temptation probably to run and take your advice. Ooh. But he says, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to see this thing through. What do you think he's trying to tell you and me? We're just all such a bunch of quitters. Things get a little hard. People laugh or mock or call us names. It's so easy to quit. It's so easy to quit because we're getting older. It's so easy to quit. For me, all I could think of was it's been so easy to quit thinking, I've done this for so many years. How can they possibly listen to this voice any longer? I get to this, I get to this verse and I hear Jesus say, you go tell that fox You go tell Satan, who is trying to get us to quit, you go tell him, we're not quitters. Because people need to hear. I've come to the conclusion, because I don't care what kind of voice I have, as long as I can squeak out the truth, that's what I'm going to do. Because we cannot quit. I think that's what this verse means even when it gets rough. He is too worthy. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. What does that mean? In your little reading, in your extra reading, if you have a little extra minute, I know that sounds reasonable, at Christmas time but sometimes we have to make those extra minutes I went to Revelation 11 and during the tribulation one of the signs was when two prophets came on the scene these two prophets that we think are Moses and Elijah they stand and they preach they preach and they preach And the people can't stand them because according to them they're preaching doom and gloom and all they're preaching is the truth trying to get them to repent. They get killed and they lay out their dead. No one even puts a cloth over them. In fact, the people party and they sing yay those old Codgers are dead. Those doom and gloom men are gone. We don't have to hear that anymore. And then God raises them up. Love that part. And he takes them back to himself. But where did that all happen? It said it happened in the center of the great city, which is Jerusalem. And now you hear Jesus, what did he try? Like, woe to you. I can almost see him put his hands on their shoulders. Listen to me. We hear just a few verses before he tried to humiliate them, trying to get them to think, of course, where's my heart? And now, now you see him just falling down, and he is weeping other gospel say, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's got two more days. And he sees it. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He is not mad. He is not angry. He is heartbroken. Whenever Jesus repeats himself twice like this remember a few weeks ago when he said, Martha, Martha. He wasn't mad, but he said, I'm going to teach you something. When Paul was on his way to Damascus, and he got knocked off his transportation, and he heard Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus wasn't mad. But he did. But he did mean. You're going to get to know me, and your life will never be the same. So there's something really quite beautiful here when he said, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city, the great city, this this city right in the center of everything, my city." going down the tubes. I think this verse also gives us another verse, ammunition, for if you think you got a whole misconception of what predestination and election looks like. I don't, I don't see how you can miss that. I, I don't see how anybody can picture Jesus going, I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you. Rest. You're on your own. Because listen to Jesus when he is pouring out his heart. How often I have longed to gather your children together as as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Oh Jerusalem, you are my heart, but... You've killed every prophet that's tried to give you the best news you're ever going to hear. How I've longed to gather all of you and placed you under my wings. I'll tell you, there isn't a hen that would want any one of her little chicks to perish. What a what a sweet picture. Of Jesus saying, I long for all of you to get under here. But then look what he says. But you were not willing. So whose who's call? Whose fault? I longed. I made it available. I wanted you under my wings where you can take refuge. But you weren't willing to come. You're sending yourself to hell by your religious ideas when all I've asked is that you humbly see yourself and you come to the only place that can change you. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I think he's trying to get those Jews to remember remember how in Jeremiah Jeremiah tried to tell the people he tried to tell the Jews you don't repent, you don't shape up Babylon's coming and they're going to take all of you into captivity and they're going to destroy this city um, don't you remember that's exactly what happened And what he's also trying to introduce them to is it's going to happen again. 70 AD, Rome's coming in, destroying the city. He's trying to get them. Remember? I mean what I say. Then he closes. Luke has... These words of Jesus close in this chapter after he has every one of us take a good look at our inner self. And if we're willing to hear God's spirit say, "Yeah, I want to work on this area," and we are compliant and we surrender and we humble ourselves. Jesus is saying, "Blessed Blessed is he. Because Jesus, I tell you, I tell you, you're not going to see me again until you say, and isn't this so glorious? To know that because we know Jesus, we're going to be able to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's us. I had a friend say to me, she got all nervous about when Jesus says, don't fear about who can kill your body. Fear the one who can throw you into hell. She didn't like that. He said, I know you so well. I know you. I know you've been to the cross. We've talked about it. I was with you. So, that doesn't mean you. you. You can just read right past that. Many of these things in this chapter it's not us. We're going to be able to say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. It's, it's a glorious thing, but if it does anything, it should give you momentum to be able to say, I got work to do. Because this is true. And there's a lot of church people. We need to start inviting church people to Bible study. Pretty sad, huh? But we do we got to invite church people to Bible study. I just want to leave you this one little thing. I read a story to my five-year-old the other day. I said to him, I said, do you know, do you know why the man who invented the candy cane, why he made it the way he did? No? At five, he, he... Never, he never knew why that man made the candy cane the way he did. I said, well, let's take a look at the candy cane. If we put that hook down, what letter does that look like? He said, it's a J. I said, you're so right. I said, what does J stand for? He said, Jonas. That's his brother. <laughs> J is for Jonas. Jonas. But I said, what about Jesus? He said, yeah, it means Jesus too. And I said, okay, let's flip the candy cane over. And the hook is on the top. Now, what does that look? Right away, he said, shepherd's hook. I said, why would the man make sure that we saw it that way too? I said, because Jesus is the best shepherd. And we are his sheep. And he wants us to follow him. So far, so good. He's still sitting there, a rambunctious five-year-old. I said, now, what about the color? Why do you think there's red stripes on there? Well, of course, we adults, we know that Isaiah verse, don't we? By his stripes, we are healed. But I didn't think he could comprehend that. So I said to him, looking at him as an all-boy, what's going to intrigue him Or perk his ears. Said those red stripes stand for blood. Oh that was the right thing to say. Cause now he is ready for the story. I said, Yeah, the red stands for the blood the blood that Jesus had on his hands and his feet and his side. And that blood covered all the things you've done wrong, all the things you will continue to do wrong, all of Grandma's things she's done wrong. And it makes... And then I said, this is why the rest of the candy cane is white. Because of that blood it makes my heart and your heart when Jesus lives in our heart and his blood covers all of our sins our heart is whiter than snow I'm telling you he sat there and he heard it and I leave that with you today at this Christmas season there's going to be many red and white candy canes going by But let us not forget this simple childlike message that changed your life and most certainly changed mine. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this honest chapter that makes us look within. Father, again, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for Calvary. We thank you for an empty tomb. We thank you for the promise of a new heaven and a new earth to be able to live in a relationship with you forever and ever. And we pray this all in our Savior's name. Amen.